to another Crowdlinker Fireside Chat. I'm Aram Lukumuf, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On this show, I'm interviewing innovation leaders who are working on big industry disruptive problems from within their organizations. Uh, all the guests that are on the show have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share about building great digital products, uh, staying agile, and fostering an innovation culture and mindset within their organizations. Uh, this is episode number 12. And I'm joined here today with Sumit Madan. Uh, Sumit is a seasoned product manager in the fintech industry. Uh, and uh, right now, he's actually the current director of product at ClearBank. Quick background on, uh, on uh, Sumit as it's quite extensive, but uh, on a daily basis, he has multiple different types of roles and responsibilities from playing a data scientist, a UX designer, product project manager, test engineer, client relationship manager, business analyst, and account lead. So very, very well-rounded um, person that we're, we have the privilege of uh, having on our show today. So Sumit, it's awesome to have you. Uh, pleasure is all mine. And uh, thanks for giving us some time today. Thank you for having me here. This is, this is a pleasure for me too. I, I would love to talk about many, many more things product. Nice, nice. Um, so I got, we have lots of things that uh, we're going to cover today, but mm -hmm. I want to kind of start off by, um, you know, bringing up that product management has a lot of different focus areas. Um, mm -hmm. But specifically, like in today's conversation that we're having, I like I really like to focus on the accountability and responsibility side, as well as stakeholder alignment uh, of a product manager, mm -hmm. um, which is like a beefy task in itself. Uh, when when we had a when we had a chance to connect before, um, you mentioned that you know in some organizations um, PMs have a lot of accountability towards what they do, but sometimes they don't have the authority. Uh, uh, how you know considering your experience and having been a PM across different companies and uh, lots of experience, you know that you you have. How do you look at that as a, as a serial PM? So it's a, it's a tricky one because you're right, accountability is very important. And if we go all the way back and parse it to when we were doing project management, we used to have this uh, racy matrix that we would make for who was responsible for something, who was accountable, who was a contributor, and who was someone who just needed the information around it, right? And so that was the first time I was hit with the phrase that, oh, you're accountable for something. I'm like, oh, but I always assumed I was accountable for it things I did um, but it became a big deal and as everything project and customer and engineering oriented turn into product management it turned out that while we were being held accountable we were not necessarily being given the authority to get things done so what I mean by that is you know that there are some tasks that you have to deliver on or in the software field some features you have to deliver on you have a deadline for it, you have estimates for it, and your job is to make sure nothing falls through the gaps and get it across the finish line. If launching is the goal, then it should get launched, get launched with everything, and every little bit and facet of it should be done. But what happens if you decide midway that this product is not a good idea, or these mm -hmm. features are not a good idea? Do you actually have the authority to kill the launch? Do you have the authority to say, no, we are going to actually delay this 
And we have to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out that we need some better research because just in the process of doing this work, we figured out that maybe we've bitten off too much, right? We can't chew on this. So in those bits, we need to start assessing, well, do I have the authority to do it? If I don't do it, um, then there's a harm for the organization or the product launch, but it won't really land. That means afterwards it will cause a sudden blip where people will be excited that we launched something, but they won't be using it and they will fall down. And then all your metrics will be trailing. And then someone will come back to you anyways and say, hey, dude, what happened with this launch? And so in that aspect, you have to have the authority to be able to say no. If there is a general manager for your business unit that you're doing this for, you have to be able to tell them, look, I'm calling the shots on this and I'm saying there's a significant risk and we can't do it. Or you should be able to just go forward and do it without anyone having to say yes or no. Now, I know that that's a big ask, but I know at big, um, you could say big engineering institutions like Google and Facebook, LinkedIn, they already do that. Like Microsoft used to do this around product managers where they would say, look, we know you understand the P&L of this product. We know you understand the impact of it and where it ties in, where it aligns with everything else. So you are the ultimate authority on this. Yes, you're accountable, but we want to actually give you the authority to be able to call the shots. And this, I feel, is a, it's a hard struggle because if you're in a small organization where you're the only product person and the CEO also wants to kind of act like the head of product because he or she thought of the idea and they don't want to give up control and that control comes as authority. And then if all you have is accountability, you get set up to be blamed. If something goes wrong, you definitely get the credit if things go right, like everyone appreciates it. But there's more chances that, you know, everyone will say, okay, well, I made the decision to uh -huh. get it. So, so those are the parts where I find it's, it's a very hard balance to maintain and it requires a very honest conversation with whomever you report to, if you're a product person to say that, look, what is my authority level? Can I call off the engineers in the middle? Can I actually get more engineering resources if I need it? Can I get more design resources? Can I pull people from other projects to work on this? Or can I just say, you know what? At this point, we need to add more scope. I am the person coming in with the scope creep. Usually the product manager is trying to back off with the scope creep and make sure everyone is fine. But at some point you may need to add on to it, right? Mm -hmm. Can I actually go in and put more work on the engineer's head? So those are a few you know, concrete examples that I can think of where authority comes into play. Mm -hmm. With um, So you're currently at, at ClearBank as mm -hmm. one of the directors of product. And I know there's a couple. Mm -hmm. Before for ClearBank, if I'm not mistaken, you were at, um, at Fineo as the head of product yes. delivery. What was like, what, where did you see your role kind of evolve there? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, what kind of authority did you have on the product side? Did, did the CEO kind of give you that ability or even at ClearBank? Did, did you have that authority there? So I would say that at Fineo, I definitely came in and it took me about a month or so to understand the field. I was new to ensure mm -hmm. I was hired as head of delivery, and then I was made head of product and delivery and started figuring out what our product would look like. Because we were in very early inception stages, it was a very big collaborative effort. I had some excellent people um, working with me who not necessarily were from that field, but had experience like engineers and uh, scrum masters working with me. But at the same time, I did lack the authority because of um, you know, having to 
constantly go and fight against what is important. We were trying to do two things at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. While both were important because there's a board of directors who want certain things done, they have a roadmap. Then there's engineering who has a roadmap, right? And then the head of product and delivery is sitting in the middle saying, "Mm, only one of these can happen at one time, right? So at that point, I kind of had to go ahead and I was fighting a lot for getting only one thing done and the message was received. Everyone agreed that yes, it's easier to get one thing out of the way and that's what we did. Mm -hmm. But the fight took much longer than I had anticipated. And so that was a hard thing. It was more of a learning thing. This is not necessarily anyone's fault, but it was more of a learning thing where when I go back and look at it, maybe I should have fought harder. And I should have said, nope, there's no way we're not doing it. Just not at all. Or the person who was actually leading the charge, who had the authority for it, he should or she should have said that, you know, let's come in here and really see what the issue is. And one of the issues was we were trying to do a lot um, and it had many more stakeholders than our current business. So at ClearBank, it's a little different. At ClearBank, how we work is we work in pods. So a lot of companies do this, they have, they call it squads, but pods is the same thing, it's a business unit. So every different business unit has different deliverables and they work on different projects. And what ends up happening is because every business unit has a GM, who's a general manager of the business unit, who kind of handles the PNL, as well as deals with the resources for it, then the product manager ends up going and talking to that person and saying, look, I'm dealing with so-and-so issue, can you give me authority? So in that aspect, we are getting really better at ClearBank. This is a relatively new thing. During COVID, they had to refocus to having pause. This is a new thing. They've never had it before. Okay. And so I have now worked in three different pods. In one of them, I have gotten the authority. In one, I have gotten no authority, which made it very hard. And there were almost too many stakeholders. And I was like constantly banging my head till it was very obvious we'd all fail. And then everyone left. And then it was just me. And then I could actually get a lot done, which was very great <laughs> because yeah. I ended up being the subject matter expertise on what we were trying to do anyway. So, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a bit of, you know, it's, it's not to knock on any organization. This is the real, realistic aspect. Like, in reality, theory, it's yeah. easy to read what to do. But in reality, this is what happens. So have, having, having all this now under your belt, what, what can you tell other PMs who are going to be listening to this or innovation leaders yeah. Before stepping into a new role um, in an organization, what what can they do in order to not get stuck in like a zero authority um, situation? I would say if you're lucky enough to listen to this and listen to my experience, I've been doing this for over 18 years, um, definitely ask for this in your interview. See who makes a decision and how decisions are made. Doesn't necessarily need to be a data-driven decision doesn't necessarily need to be a gut-based decision, right? There's always a bit of both happening anyways. So, but ask who is responsible in there? What responsibility would the product manager get? If the product manager, because of the nature of the role and having to figure out where there are gaps, like if you're joining a big organization and you're not responsible for the pricing or the go-to-market strategy, if all you're doing is user research and then being sort of a scrum master to get things done, scoping, writing epics and stories, then what will happen eventually is you'll just be the person going back and forth. That's it. 
you're going from the users and then you're getting someone to say, okay, this is great scope. We should probably be your engineering manager or your director of engineering and writing out epics and stories and then just following them to delivery. Because you're taken out of the picture from pricing and GTM, what happens is you almost feel like you've done your job. Whereas a product manager's job is not done till a product is being used and then they can get feedback and see, well, why are people actually using this product? Yeah, I know they said they wanted it, but why are they actually using it? How mm -hmm. is it helping them? Because that helps you go the extra step and add better features or make a better product going forward. So what I would do is come and ask, where, what exactly is defining my role? What aspect of product management will I be working on? That will give a very good indication whether the organization even knows what product management is and not everyone does. Which is which is something I found out, and uh, it's a new it's a new field, right? Like it's still it's still developing, and then ask how much authority I will have, what kind of decisions can I take, what kind of decisions can I not take, and then decide if it's if it matters to you. For some people, it's nice to have limited scope. I worked with a senior engineer for many years. One of the smartest people I work with is a very good personal friend. He doesn't necessarily want to manage people. He would love to do the architecture. He would love to code but he doesn't want to manage people. He doesn't want to, he can understand requirements from a user really, really, really well because of his background in hospitality management. So he knows what people are really going for. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he doesn't want to be the one writing out the scope and deciding all the other things or having any authority on it. So everyone has different needs. Right, right, right. That's, uh, that's some great insight there. I think whoever's going to be listening to this in terms of like the questions <laughs> they should ask, because I know, a lot of PMs who go yeah. and apply to a role and they don't ask, you know, these basic things. And then they get stuck in a situation where they're not happy, unmotivated, feel like they don't really have anywhere to, to push any boundaries. And then, you know, they eventually leave, which then leads into my kind of next question is that how do you keep rock star PMs in, you know, motivated in, in a company? Yeah. Oh. Uh, because eventually most people want to, you know, do their own thing or do their own process around it or whatnot, because they feel like independent, right? So like, yeah. what have you seen works? So if you define rock star to be someone who is a real go-getter, like wants to go above and beyond everything, like it's not about just delivering the, the product for them. It's about, you know, being involved in the deciding uh, stages, you know, not necessarily working all night, but making sure that not only do you deliver, but like I said before, like the product lands and then you can talk to the users afterwards and you can see how they're using it and come back and improve upon it. Despite you say you, you're moved on to another product, right? And still keeping on the responsibility or the accountability to make sure someone follows up. If you think of that person as a rock star uh, PM, the best way to do it is to incentivize them to make sure they think of every single product as having a full life cycle. The life cycle being from when it was thought about all the way to the long tail end where the product is used so often that people don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. It can't be only tied to metrics like daily average users or stickiness or weekly average users or NPS, right? Or retention scores. It has to be more than that. Like people have to be using it if that was, that was the goal, right? It has to be giving them value at the frequency that you decide whether it's daily or weekly or monthly. That's, that's what I think. If you define a rockstar PM as someone who wants to go out, like find problems, 
make make up different features and solve them themselves. I don't think any organization can keep a rockstar PM uh, really happy because a, a lot of them uh, will eventually want to solve their own, like scratch their own itch, solve the yeah. problems that they're facing, and they'll want to go out and start something because in the end, they'll be wanting authority. There's very few organizations. So I know a, friend, a few friends who have not left Google. The reason they don't leave Google is because Google will give you that time, right? To work on your own thing. What a lot of yes. employers get is when they drop your employment contract and when you're signing an employment contract, usually you don't have enough leverage. You'll see, they'll say that, you know what? You're working for us in these hours. Everything you do is ours. So right away, it's killing a part of you where it says that, hey, what if I have an idea? Well, it belongs to them or forget it. You know, what's the point? So one, one advice I'll give to product managers is if you know a good labor lawyer, keep them handy, keep them happy. I always make sure I can work on contracts and not-for-profit things on the side because that keeps my brain alive. And it keeps me happy at work too. I go back and forth with things I learn around technology and how to make decisions. And it makes both sides better. And then you can keep Rockstar PMs. Uh, it's, um, it's very similar. The story is exactly... Uh in the show Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you ever watched that where, yeah, yeah, I have. you know, they, uh, you know, the C, the CEO in the role or the main actor in the role was um, creating a software and he was doing it on the time or like on the service servers or computer of like the company he's working at. So I, I've, I've heard some crazy horror stories as well in different organizations. And it's unfortunate because it just fosters more creativity and it keeps people inclined to learn more and to try new things and to push their own boundaries in terms of what they can do during office hours or you know outside office hours and i think it's rare i know shopify has that i think on fridays or on certain days they allow people to work so that's great it's great yeah no it's 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 tough like having there's a lot of things that go on at, you know in the realm of a pm and so being able to give them that authority and that independence, I think mm -hmm. keeps them engaged and motivated. No, um, let's talk about uh, getting uh, stakeholder alignment. So <laughs> the other part of you know the conversation I wanna have with you today is like uh, coming in into an organization or actually being within one for a long time, you know, getting stakeholder involved in alignment from like the C-level to the board is, mm -hmm. is, a, is an uphill battle. Uh, and it's not just a PM problem. It's, you know, sometimes could be a, a company problem, right? Um, from your experience, what have you seen um, is necessary for a PM to get other people on board on their initiative or, or you know, convince somebody towards an initi initiative? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a couple of things that I have seen that have worked and that have failed for me um, and things that have worked is when I start out on a product, which usually ends up, I end up treating it like a project. I, I lay out a roadmap for the product. What I do is I try to put big chunks down. This is not in any particular software. And I put down what's actually going to happen in stages, right? Where, how are we gonna go through the planning and the estimation? Whom will we speak with? How will this get justified, right? and then the amount of work will be done. And I'll give you an example to you know, make it more concrete. Say you have to do an integration for a data feed, right? 
So what does that require? That requires you having someone who says, well, we actually need this data. This is what we're using it for, and this is the ROI on it. Okay, now I go look for vendors. I go sign them up. There's a lot of talking till I sign them up, and someone has to sign the contract. Then I come in, play in the sandbox with the environment. Then I go forward, play with the data, see if I need to put it in a NoSQL database or not, and what are the relational um, uh, database uh, you know, parameters that I'll have to see. Then I actually scope out the work with engineering, right? And then I... The work gets done and then it has to be delivered, then it has to be used by many teams. And then we have to assess if it worked, right? And tie it off, right? So all of those things, if we have to factor in for every one, every stage of them, there's different stakeholders, right? And to align them, you could start off with all of them in one room, right? Right now on one Zoom call. And you could tell them that, look, this is my plan. This is what I've tried and it has worked well. This is my plan. This is what I'm doing. These are the stages at which I see, you know, the data science team, as well as a general manager, as well as me being there. This is a team. This is the time in which developer doesn't need to be in there because I'm just talking contracts. This is the time when the developer needs to be in there. We're talking about rate limitations. Then in estimation, these people come in then afterwards, right? So you'll see some of the more important or busy stakeholders who manage the PNL. They'll come in in the beginning and at the end, right? It'll automatically start happening. But they will be aligned because you will also be giving them a cadence of, say, weekly reports of how it's going or bi-weekly reports, depending on the length of launching this product. But that's the way I find it's easy to align stakeholders because what a stakeholder really wants to know is, is this work happening? Are we going to get value out of it, right? And so at any time they can know one or the other and in the middle of the stages of the product development they can only know if the work is happening and if it's going forward right they want to know if there's any blockers they can remove and you'll obviously reach out to them right but they also want to know if it paid off so in the beginning is the justification and the end is the proof or saying look it didn't work out right all of these parameters came out but it didn't align with everything else that the institution was doing right mm -hmm. our organization was doing so the way I would align stakeholders is actually get them in the room when you start something new out and say, these are all the people I think are stakeholders. If you feel you are not a stakeholder, raise your hand now, and then I won't bother you with the over-communication, right? This is how the over-communication will look like. Set, set the expectations. These are the cadences I'll have, and I'll send this out. And maybe I'll send out a weekly newsletter to you about what's going on. Now, what hasn't worked for me in the past is assuming that the work I was given, everyone was behind anyways, or understood it. So never assume anything. I did assume, and it's bitten me that, you know, everyone understands why this is important. And so I don't need to align everyone. And right at the end, I figured out that everyone who had sponsored it didn't really understand themselves what was involved. Mm -hmm. So they were not happy with the final product. And that happens. Mm -hmm. And then you have to kind of go back and say, look, how much do I have to rewind? Do we have to postpone this, right? Do we just abandon it now? And abandoning things has a very big cost. Engineers do not feel nice about it in software products, right? And like I burn very all this time and all this energy, right? And it's not fair. I can understand it, right? So um, yeah, so in that sense, like what I've realized is assumptions are the worst things, set expectations and in the beginning, over-communicate to everyone, get them to call out themselves 
on record in front of everyone that they are not a stakeholder for something, that would really help. Because once people have to commit to it in public, then they are committed to it. So, That's very true. Yeah. Informed. Yeah. Yeah. It's like once once you really connect with that person, saying, "Hey, I need your commitment. Can you give it to me?" It's yeah. I mean, there are people who worry off of that kind of yeah. path. You know, so it's just the reality of the beast. But um, in, in your opinion, uh, mm -hmm. what is sometimes missing? or overlooked in common stakeholder alignment advice? Okay. Um, wow, that's, that's a good one. What's missing or overlooked in advice? It's kind of like asking me, what are the unknown unknowns? <laughs> I don't know who else is. <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld, man, he messed us all up. Uh, so I think I have not heard of many people advising about um, stakeholder alignment, right? And I think that may be because of my selection of podcasts, to be very frank. Uh, but what I would think is if, the, if you survey all PMs, right? And get them to talk about previous failures and go about that way. And I'm talking very data-driven approach and ask them what has failed in relation to this. I think what they would say is when I was advised that these five people are the stakeholders, I did not know that four others were missing. When I was advised that these four people were the stakeholders, I was not given context on why they were stakeholders, right? What is each of them bringing to the product and what is each of them expecting to the product? So if you think of um, Dilbert Comics, if you've ever seen Dilbert comics, like he makes fun of all the politics, right? Scott Adams. So one of the common themes in there is expectations management. And it's like, you never know if someone has a budget issue, which is why they're supporting or not supporting something. And if you, and you don't know if there's a dependency, if there's a critical dependency, that person will call themselves out in a big organization as being the stakeholder for that critical dependency, because they will be coming back to you every week and saying, hey, is this done? Is this on path? Are there any blockers? Because I'm waiting for it. My team is waiting for it. And when I ask them for their reports, they tell me what is the status of A and B so that we can do C and D. Very mm -hmm. simple, right? But it's the other ones that get missed who have maybe a soft touch dependency. So what I would do is maybe go out and get context on why a person is a stakeholder, what their goals are and where it matters. Have them think about it. They will not be able to answer this easily. It's not easy for anyone to answer. If someone asked me, it would be hard for me. I'd have to know the scope of their product or their project and have to go and think about where it would actually matter to me and then get back to them. And if you come back to them next week and say, this is exactly what matters eight months down the line, then you kind of know how, oh, you know, what the stakeholder is bringing to the game, right? Because if it doesn't matter to them immediately, a lot of things can change in nine months you may be able to go to them and uh, they won't care if your product is not working immediately, right? They will also not be a good voice for you or on behalf of your work. That's what I think is probably one of the things missing, the context behind why someone's a stakeholder. Do you, I mean, I'm assuming there's a different path for a mm -hmm. PM where uh, if I'm a PM joining a new company and I was hired specifically to create a new product, Yes. Uh, that path for that PM is going to be quite different than, say, a PM 
coming into an organization with an existing product that's already, say, yeah. in market, what would you recommend to those type of BMs um, in terms of the approach or strategy they should implement when joining a new organization uh, towards getting familiar with a product, its purpose, its KPIs? Any kind of advice you would share uh, for those type of PMs joining an existing product? So this is someone who is coming in and has to work on an existing product, right? Yeah. And is this a new domain or is it in a similar domain? Uh, so say someone comes from EdTech into FinTech, right? That's a, like a domain switch. That is that is a main switch. Yeah, let's say in the same domain. If, if you say the same domain, I, I think one of the things I would advise is um, again around assuming that because it's the same domain, and it's a product that already exists is being able to actually get a feel of the product, be able to, is this a product that exists? Yeah. If it's a product that exists, then it makes your work a little bit easier because you can actually play with the product, right? Check out what it does, talk to the users, see if there's any metrics, daily metrics or weekly metrics on it, check them out, see how it's trending, see, who churned from the product, there's always someone who churns and mm -hmm. why they churned, see if they're open to talking to you and letting you know, and maybe ask the previous product manager or have it written down somewhere. You know how you can do a product brief, like a press release? So that's kind of what you're looking for. What was this product meaning to solve? Was it adding or was it taking away something? And then it's it's sort of like reverse, uh, you know, a breakdown. You start working yourself backwards. You start peeling at the layers, saying this is what it was supposed to do. It did this, but these people still left because they were not happy with how fast it did it, mm -hmm. or it didn't do it the same way they expected, or it did it but it didn't communicate it, right? Or was it just too buggy? Or did they have an already entrenched product that this was supposed to replace? And people are resistant to change, so they just didn't delete the other product. And so they never ended up using it, even though they liked it in our surveys, right? So it, it can actually boil down to many things, but you have to go behind it. And I always, and this is why I always suggest that, you know, you have to keep on talking to your clients. Probably the most important thing you can do in product is talk to the people who use the product. That's it. Because until you do that, right, and you understand them and you listen to them, listening is such a hard skill these days. Um, <laughs> you can't figure it out. So I think that would be one of the biggest things, right? If, if it's a new domain, then there's the hurdle you have to get over, which is learning the domain, learning the ins and outs, hopefully working with someone who has released a product or reaching out, finding a mentor in that space and telling them, Hey, can you please help me out? What are the traps I should watch out for? Like in fintech, there's regulations, right? Even yeah. though there's regulations, fintech as an industry exists to ask for forgiveness, not permission. Exactly. So because of that, you have to be very careful about, okay, everyone is a bank, but they're not doing compliance. Compliance is being done by the bank because compliance is the hard stuff to do. So everyone is making APIs to actually get the data in and out, right? So this is the work I have to understand. This is the work that no one is doing now. I need to talk to someone about that. If you're going into a, a healthcare technology, PII has a very different definition than it would in, uh, say, um, FinTech. FinTech, there's, you do not want to know the identity of the person necessarily, but in healthcare, 
technology, the PII takes on a whole different meaning. All records have some PII and all the information you have to work with is really personal information. So then you're having to deal with a domain where you really need someone who's well-versed with it and you need to talk to them. So. Mm -hmm. No, it's great, great. Thank, thanks for sharing that. A um, Couple more questions, Samit. Mm -hmm. uh, before we wrap up, wrap up the stakeholder alignment, uh, aside, aside from what you mentioned, uh, for the PMs who are going to be listening to this or the innovation leaders, uh, what should they put into practice tomorrow in their organization uh, to be more successful towards um, on the stakeholder alignment side, um, like within their structure? I think what would be useful as, as a takeaway from this and also as a good habit that I myself want to maintain is writing down every day. I take notes every day of what I do and I actually write it down, right? Don't suggest everyone has to do it. But because I write it down, I kind of know what I talked about in my standups. I kind of know who attended the standups. I started putting this down, I think in 2005, who attended the meeting every single time. So I know who's missing. Right there right and because i know who's missing i know i have to now go and communicate to that person so you will have your cadences where you say you have stand-ups have the person who may be the authority or maybe the person you're delivering this product for attend once a week right could be a wednesday wednesday is a really a good day because that's where everything comes to a head and Friday, every you know, people are canceling meetings. Monday, checked everyone, out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Monday, everyone's optimistic. They're like, "Oh yeah, I don't see any problems." Right. So Wednesday is a good day. Bring them in for that stand up. Have everyone knows that Wednesday, Wednesday, this person will come for a stand up, and be able to actually get the message to them. And if they don't show up, then go out and tell them. That's a good thing to put in practice. You know, not missing that key stakeholder from. Uh, your stand-ups and telling them how things are going, but also making a note of who attended everything so you go out and communicate because you going out and having to communicate aligns everyone. Mm -hmm. I know it's a little too much, but it aligns everyone. And I like doing it in a quick call, even though we have Slack, because who knows when they saw it and what context they saw it in. And yeah. if it just bothered them and it broke their flow instead of actually listening to it. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I love the concept of over communicating on everything to make sure everybody's on the same page. And you're 100 percent right with everything being remote these days, doing it over Slack or stuff like I've seen so many things being misinterpreted, even like the tone or like the message composition. Yes. It's missed totally. Right. Um, so that's that's a great idea. I, I, I love getting everybody up to speed on the Wednesday. So I'll, I'll probably start telling the team to do that more often as well. Um, before we move into the quick fire questions, which is what yeah. I always love to you know end end these type of meetings with, is um, I want to know. I mean, where you have a lot of experience, so maybe you've worked in a lot of different things. Where do you go to get your um, your knowledge boost? Like, do you go? Do you have a mentor, advisor? Is there any course, books, any anything that you recommend in order to keep? sharpening your mindset uh, as, as an innovation leader? That's, uh, that would need another podcast, my friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Calls notes version. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I really enjoy learning. I have had the chance to 
you know, annoy my wife by learning a lot and spending a lot of money. I have a PMP, I have an MBA, I have, you know, like all these degrees. But what I really have enjoyed is listening to podcasts and reading books that are not from my subject matter. So I read a lot of behavioral economics. I would suggest reading Dan Ariely's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Because as product people, it's all about the behavior of humans that we're working with. And humans tend to feel irrational. So what I do is I keep a set of business, science, and behavioral economics and regular economics podcasts that I listen to on a daily basis when I wake up in the morning and I work out. And that kind of sets the tone of the day. In the morning, I'm ready to imbibe knowledge, right? At night, I'm probably giving out knowledge and my kids are ignoring me. But, uh, you know, that helps a lot. I read books on, um, you know, nonfiction books are around quantum physics because it makes me think, makes me, you know, break down concepts. And then I try to come back and break down concepts and understand them at work. So having a very holistic set, whatever you do helps. I do not only focus. I do have some really good books. One I would recommend is I picked up in Toronto, The Art of Product Management by Rich Miranov. He's, he's a great guy from Silicon Valley and I was lucky mm-hmm. to speak, right? And uh, so I do read product books, but they really are sparse out of everything I listen to. You have to be you know, well-rounded. Uh, I just recently started reading a book called Range. Um, okay. It's a, have you heard of it? No, no. Uh, no, it's, um, it's how in a, to be in everything, successful people are the ones who are generalists in many different ways. So like how you are, you know, getting your knowledge and insight from outside of your realm, mm-hmm. that makes you a generalist, which allows you to yeah. provide that different type of thinking processes towards what you do. And it's like a different perspective. And it's, it's, it's an interesting book. It actually just became, I think, a bestseller. Um, really? So I would really recommend it. It's called Range. Uh, I can't remember the author, but he wrote another book called, I think it's called The Sports Game, something like that. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm writing yeah, check it down. Yeah, check it out. Um, yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, I'm going to jump into the quick fire questions. Awesome. Um, I always like the ending off of these because they're like one-liner questions and one two-liner answers right so that's something that uh, people can take away with uh you yeah. know at the end um so we talked about a lot of things about captability and uh and stakeholder alignment but uh, what aside from that or maybe on that note something that you didn't mention yet is what is something that um you know, a PM or an innovation leader, depending on the size of their organization, should stop doing, you know, right away? I would say agreeing to deadlines from executives only to turn around and enforce them on someone who's working on the task. That does not work. Get everyone in the room, make them see the feasibility of what the ask is, and all estimates are lies anyways. So... (laughs) Oh, man, I'm going to tell that to so many people that I work with. Okay, (laughs) I love that. Okay, cool. Um, on that flip side, what yeah. should they, I mean, you kind of give a good answer there with like stopping and, and, and doing yeah. something, but what is something that they should start doing as well? So by start, I would refer back to what I said, like behavioral economics, like look at why someone did something. So I know we focus on NPS, daily active users, monthly active users. They're excellent KPIs, but go more than that. Why did someone log in today? Why did someone use this today? 
right? How are they using this? Because you're trying to figure out what is really triggering them to come to your platform, right? Why today? Why not yesterday? What happened yesterday, right? So those are the things that make a good product because you induce people to come to your product, right? Once you can do that, then you don't have to worry about much. So go behind, go more than the number. Go more. Yeah. Go more than the number. Okay. That's, that's perfect. Um, couple more. Yeah. How, how do you balance theory and practical application to advance your mindset as a, as a leader? Okay. What would you mean by mindset as a, as a leader? So it's, you know, perspective, I think, oh. uh, the way you approach things. Um, there's a theory component and then there's a practical mm -hmm. application. Uh, how do you kind of look at that perspective between the dynamics between the two? So I'll take an example. Like if you think about theory around doing customer research, right? And you can sit and you can do surveys or you could, you know, publish like lots of um, type form responses and go through all the data and see what people said. Um, part of what I do is I have to assess at what stage the product is or the feature is that I'm launching and how people are reacting to it. So I don't just go out and blindly apply those methods that are, you know, good for a certain kind of problem. I actually try to get the sensitivity of the usage of the product and try to go and ask people. It's always good to have a phone call. I still have a phone call with a customer every single day. And the reason I do that is because it brings to forth many more things. Not only it's you're more empathetic to the user. So you don't realize it, but as soon as you talk to someone, you get some empathy. Because if you didn't have empathy, you'd be, you wouldn't be in the product anyways. <laughs> I would assume. Very true. So that's, that's where I try to marry theory with practical application. Yeah, I need a survey, but I also need to talk to this person. And then maybe I do not need a survey for everything or that's mm -hmm. what influences my gut when I'm looking at this data. I'm a strong believer in that as well. Like I think surveys serve a certain type of purpose, you know, in terms yes. of maybe volume. But exactly. at the end of the day, you should always speak to the customer still as early as you can, and to you know gauge you know them and you know listen as you said. Like it's all about listening, yeah. and yeah. you can't get that through a survey because like it's just basically written content. You know, I I, day, I, but... I made a massive mistake once. I, I went to New York. We started this company. We were working with a hedge fund, and we gave them exactly what they asked for. After listening to them, after getting their Excel sheet, which we reproduced exactly. Right. Uh, and went there and they said, dude, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. We can't use it. I'm like, this is exactly your sheet. He's like, yeah, but that's Excel. <laughs> I'm like, you're right. I wasn't listening at all. I heard you, but I didn't listen. So um, they didn't want that. They were having to do it a certain way. They were constrained by the platform that they were using. So to uh, go back and completely change it. And that's what showed me that, you know what? I'm going to be coming back here every three months sitting in your room, every time you get excited or every time you're upset, I'm going to ask you what made you excited, what made you upset, because that's where you have an emotional connection and that is what needs to go in my product. I love that. That's great. That's a cool story. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, I have a question about um, the trend or the direction of PMs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of said it as well in the, in the 
in the recording so far that product management quickly grew and became really hot, very kind of sexy. Like nobody really knows what a PM does, you know, <laughs> at times. Um, have you seen, I mean, what trends have you seen that are coming up in the future for, for PMs that they need to start thinking about? So I think um, when it comes to more work around artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think we have our work cut out for ourselves. And by us, I mean mm -hmm. product managers. The reason I say that is um, there's a big difference between software engineering and how that happens and how we manage expectations, whether it's users or with the engineering team themselves and how AI and ML work. And uh, how do you get a machine learning team to speak with an engineering team is a very careful dance. There's a and this is because there's a critical difference between mm -hmm. software development and machine learning. So software development can be simplified and I'm being facetiously reductive over yeah. here, but uh, software development is automating tasks, right? If you could generalize it, like we're automating this that we do, right? But the latter machine learning, that is around automating the creation of the right type of automation of the task itself, right? You have to start off with a model that is trained on some data that was entered by a lot of people over a lot of time, right? And then the best thing that can happen is that model is exactly what your users want. But as soon as you deviate from it, you're like, oh my God, what do I do now, right? And so then you have to go to the engineer and they say, well, we developed it exactly as you told us based on the model. Yeah, yeah but it's predicting something else now. So the iterations needed for machine learning work are completely different much longer cycles. You cannot treat them like regular software development projects. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to users and showing them errors, you could have not only system errors and users not using it properly errors, but contextual errors of how they're actually understanding how the application has to be used. So I think as product managers, we have our work cut out for ourselves. All of us should take on some work to work in that field and do with someone actually dealing machine learning, work with the data science team and see what they face day to day to figure out where product management can provide value. That's what I think would be, it'll be good. It'll be good to learn from that. Oh, for sure. I think definitely that's a horizon that has limitless potential for yeah. anybody as a PM, especially. Um, last question, any closing yeah. thoughts uh, or final messages you wanna pass down? Absolutely. Uh, so I know I touched on a lot of this before, but I think product management is a combination of multiple skills, right? It involves user research, an ability to lessen, empathize, data analysis, differentiating causation from correlation, like stakeholder management, ability to tolerate some political maneuvers that happen in organizations, right? Gap analysis, iterative endurance, right? And you have to be able to endure the many iterations engineering management, scrum master basics, project management, pricing knowledge, and go-to-market strategies. What I would say is, if anyone is looking to get into this field, it's a lot, see, it's, it's a lot. Try to focus on one or two of the ones I mentioned. I can send you a list if you want of what I've figured out, what I have to do on a daily basis sometimes. But pick one or two, right, and focus on it. Because we, have so, we wear so many hats, we never end up specializing. There is a true. benefit to specializing in some things, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can bring that experience to bear on the other sides and that will be your strong point when other things are weak. And so we need some depth to build out our careers, right? And have that edge. And this is the difference between working for a startup 
and an established firm. In a startup, you kind of have to be in survival mode all the time doing everything. Yeah. That's great, builds up good survival skills, but do you always want to be in survival mode? No, you don't always want to be camping. At some point you want to take a break, right? And you want to be able to specialize and focus on things. So that's why it's good. And if someone is not a problem solver by default, you should pick a different field. That's it. Product is for if you want to solve problems, problems, right? This one treats you well only if you are fanatic about solving problems so much as to start chasing them whenever you find them. Otherwise, you know what? Like I, I had a PMP and I was sticking to just managing projects and that was not satisfying for me, right? And I said, nope, I'm going to be a product manager. I will go overboard and kill myself with this and do absolutely everything to solve the complete problem. So, All right. Awesome. Uh, Sumit, it was amazing having you on our, on our show. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom, your know-how sharing with the audience. So I'm sure it's going to be really valuable to everybody who's listening. So thank, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the time. And you've been more than gracious to me. Like, you know, there, I'm sure there's many more people over there who know a lot more than I do, but you know, I'm hoping everyone makes everyone else smarter and stronger. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And for everybody listening in, tune in uh, next time uh, for our next uh, episode on, uh, on corporate innovation, product innovation with uh, other, other professionals in the space uh, to share their insights. Thanks again. Yeah.